0: In times of hardship is when some of the most compelling and fast-growing companies come and out of necessity create something new. Because necessity meaning I don't have a job, nobody's gonna hire anybody right now. And so it is potentially a great time for invention if they can survive through that period. Hi there,
1: welcome back to the SOLIDWORKS Born to Design Podcast, a collection of inspiring stories about those who create, build, invent, and engineer new ideas into actual new products. And by the way, they all use SOLIDWORKS. I'm your host, Cliff Medling, and I wanna thank you for joining us for this episode of the Born to Design Podcast. Learn the keys to kickstart your business. Today, I'm talking with Charles Adler, founder of Kickstarter, designer and entrepreneur. Listen as Charles discusses the keys to taking a great idea to market, his advice may surprise you, as it did me. He discusses tips for communicating your new ideas as well. So let's jump right into his interview. So you are a co-founder of Kickstarter, and I'd love to start with that. Talk about that idea, the humble beginnings of that, how it all got started with the concept. I know a lot. You talked a lot about this at 3D Experience World, but I'd love to hear you know where that started and how you guys decided to jump two
0: feet in or four feet in to get that started. Yeah, totally. So maybe peeling the the onion back from the jumping in, two of those feet is what got this whole thing started in some shape or form, uh, which is the feet owned by Perry Chen. So uh, Perry is my co-founder. He is the one who I would argue had a struggle back in 2001. And that struggle led him to look for a solution, which back between, say, 2001 and at least two thousand and nine didn't exist, um, and so the the quick story there is he wanted to put on a concert in New Orleans where he was living at the time, and didn't have all the money in the world to put this thing on. Uh, was was pulling it all together, so pulling the the artists together, musicians, the venue, the the staff required to put the event on, the PA equipment, all the things that you need to put on a good party, and when he started to look at what the tally was going to be, what he was going to have to pay to put the event on with the risk of not knowing if people were going to show up to this party. uh, He put the brakes on the show and it never happened. And that really frustrated him because he was really trying to do something, you know, what I would say is like intimate and unique and challenging culturally for what was going on in, in new Orleans at the time And I guess, you know, there was some threshold that he crossed financially and culturally that had him pull back. And what he was looking for at the time was some way that he could just as simply like pre-sell tickets to the show. And if he hit the bare minimum to cover the cost of the show, then cool, he'll put it together. Like he was doing this out of, you know, kind of cultural interest and artistic interest and not as a purely money-making thing. Um, I'm sure he would have loved to have made money on the show if it were to have happened, but um, that wasn't the sole intent. And so as long as it broke even, like that was cool. Anyway, long and the short of it is, like, clearly nothing existed. He sat with that idea for a while. Perry back then was not a technologist and not an entrepreneur, so to speak. Um, right. Clearly had that bug in him. He's a deeply, deeply curious person. And in 2006, I believe he met uh, my co-founder, other co-founder Yancey. And then about a year, a little under a year later, I got introduced to Perry. And so then there's like the three musketeers kind of story. But I would say the commonality, kind of the last point on this, the commonality between the three of us is that we, all three of us, come from what I would say is like cultural sub-communities or subcultures uh, that basically represent the underdog. So I grew up in the sort of skateboarding, punk rock, hip-hop, electronic dance music underworld. And that whole underworld is effectively the story of a struggle, creative expression struggle. Uh, and Yancey comes out of the indie music world. So he was a, he's a writer by by trade, but he worked for eMusic, which was a competitor to iTunes around independent music and has written for the New York Times, but I know um, Village Voice and so forth. And he's been around kind of independent, independent music scene for a very, very long time. Uh, and so we share this interest in what I would argue is like supporting the underdog creative. And so pulling all that together is where, you know, kind of the ethos of where Kickstarter comes from. I'll kind of leave it at that and we can you know, I'm sure there's more direction. Yeah. I love the,
1: I love the underdog story and Kickstarter was at the right place at the right time, right? I yeah. Mean, it, so it's years it's, ago, I, I think of entrepreneurship wasn't a common yeah. word, but I think it started coming out and you guys happened to start at the right time. when you. I,
0: I, so that's an interesting, I've not made that reflection so much, although I would argue that that's, that is just as interesting, um, which is the the sort of popularization of entrepreneurship, I guess. I would argue whether that's a truism or a falsehood, but the where I thought you were going with that, which I think is really interesting, reflective of where we are right now. And where we are right now is at the, I would argue clearly is, is at the very shaky precipice of a massive depression, economic depression, because of COVID-19. And so coming out of the the era that we were building and then launched Kickstarter, I think is very important. Um, And this is a fairly common refrain in the sort of VC entrepreneurial world as well as the non-VC entrepreneurial world, which is in times of hardship is when some of the most compelling and fast growing companies come if they can survive through that period. So we were building, I mean, I literally met Perry kind of at this moment in that era. So that was the global economic meltdown because of the housing crisis. Right. And um, so you got to think like end of 2006, beginning of 2007, there were just beginning to be some telltale signs of the shaky footing by the time we launched in 2009, we were still in the depths of it, but we're starting to come out the other end. And so I think that was good timing to launch. That's
1: interesting. I wouldn't have felt, thought about that point, but that's interesting. So oh, now now it may huge. be another good time to, you think now's another good time for people to launch their ideas? Uh, once, th- once we go over the hump, I guess, of COVID.
0: For sure. And I, and I think about this a lot because I'm building a new thing, right? Right, uh, right. I've been building this thing for a while. And it's like a little maddening that we're in this moment. But I take some heart in knowing that I've been through this experience before. Which means that for this one, oh boy, maybe I should slow down. Because I don't know that I necessarily want to launch or read the tea leaves once I launch. In the midst of chaos but it's as we start, we're all in a better mental frame as we come out of the other side, which I don't, you never really know when you're out of the other side until you're out. Right. Um, Yeah. So I, I, you know, what I would say is like in this moment, maybe we can pull it back in in a second, but I think in this moment, there's going to be a lot of hardship. It's going to suck. Right. Right. Um, And I think we're just at the beginning of hearing what some of that news is. And it's beyond, it's the repercussions of, COVID-19, not COVID-19 itself. Uh, A lot of people are going to lose their jobs. And I think as much as that's unfortunate, hopefully many people or some subset of people will find relief or opportunity in that hardship and out of necessity, create something new. Because necessity, meaning I don't have a job, nobody's going to hire anybody right now Presumably, unless you're going to go work at CVS or Amazon, (laughs) right? right? Um, And so, it is potentially a great time for invention, and that's without even seeing what what the government does, right? Right. So you think about like post World War II, there was a lot of um, industry development spurred by government investment. So, or even not not even even post World War II during World War II. So history tells us a lot about where we might go, so.
1: I, I totally agree with that, yeah. Uh, what was the famous quote? If we want to see what our future's like, look at look at our past, right? Or something like that? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a great point. And, and, I, and you brought up something that, that I'd like to touch on, which was interesting to me. You said that, you, know, you, you talked about the distinction between VC hmm. startups and non-VC startups. So, is right. really to help the non-VC startups, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I think what's interesting about uh, maybe I'll say times like these or this time. And maybe this is just like this weird quirk that I have personally. I think the most interesting place to work is at the intersection between industries or disciplines because you're starting to articulate something new. And so, and I can explain, maybe explain that through Kickstarter because I think at this point many people, or if not most, know no Kickstarter. And so it's an easy reference, but when we were building Kickstarter and even trying to explain what Kickstarter was to people, you usually get, you know, kind of a blank stare. Um, (laughs) and every once in a while you get excitement, meaning some, Oh yeah, I see that future too. I see that that's possible because they're looking at the fringe. Right. But the intersectionality, if that were a word, um, that I'm, that I want to express is at the time there were things like YouTube, right? It was purely video sharing on the internet. Right. There were things like Blogger or uh, WordPress, purely written words on the internet, right? Blogging. And then there were things like PayPal, which is purely payments on the internet. And so for us, and I think the thing that was really interesting is we were looking at the experience that creative people were having and thinking about how do you bring that experience through the internet and it's not to do it as a rubber stamp, but to leverage the internet to provide a different kind of maybe an enhanced or a variation on that experience. And so I use those three examples of blogging and payments and video. Again, this is kind of obvious at this point, which is we pulled all that together to create an experience for creators to express what it was that they were doing. Right? So that's the video. Right. Attain capital from people. That's the payments piece. And then effectively share the story of developing that project and delivering that project to those communities, which was blogging. The short version of that was we could have just come up with a mechanically better version of PayPal and be done with it. We talked about that, which was hey, people already have blogs. Maybe we just have a button that goes on their blog website. And arguably, some people tried that. That didn't work. And the path that we took. Did work so, so anyway. So that's like the area that 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 I get really excited about, which is just this sort of like this intersectionality between things, because I think that's where really big ideas come from. And I say big ideas because they're generally like they're things that don't have a, a known market to them just yet. I can see that, yeah, especially now. And so going back to that question around distinction between uh, VC versus non-VC backed company, I think we're in a really interesting period because yes, you're totally right. The ethos and thesis for Kickstarter day zero and still today is about providing capital through the community of people that they know or are their fans to support getting a project out the door. Now that's broad enough that we see a lot of people using the platform to get some initial funding just to get what i'll describe as like an moq minimum order quantity um, into the hands of their audience pre or post funding and so a really good example of that i guess would would be pebble Um, another one would be oculus rift and and there's a plethora of others um, some of which go on to either kind of play into that what I'll say is venture building world. So Oculus got acquired by Facebook. I, I don't remember if they've actually raised any capital pure post but but that you know I would say that Oculus kind of fits into the venture narrative. But at the time, it didn't necessarily. And then there's clearly about th- like tens of hundreds of thousands of projects that absolutely don't fit it in that world. Community right. gardens or small like CNC products projects. I would argue, right? There's they're building a company, but you know, maybe that product doesn't quite hit the scale that is needed for, for venture capital. And so there's this like really interesting middle territory and that right. kind of goes, again, goes back to the line is a little blurred. Like it's not an absolute line, uh, on Kickstarter. and I think that's, that's interesting.
1: Well, was there, it was once Kickstarter was established, you probably had VCs on there saying, Oh, this,
0: this one's taking off. Maybe now's the time to get in, right? Interesting. So, um, so basically that's looking at it almost like it's a scouting platform. Um, right. I don't even know about that. Well, we, what I will say that we've heard a bit of is some investors will uh, suggest to, if it's a hardware product, right? So something like uh, Peloton. Peloton started on Kickstarter. I didn't know that. <clears throat> yeah, I didn't know that until a couple of months ago, actually. <laughs> uh, Allbirds as well. So the shoe company uh, started on Kickstarter and actually didn't even have a name to it when they launched their campaign, which is even better. I mean, it was like totally obscure. So, you know, one of the things we, we hear, and, and, and th- I think there's, th- what's interesting is there's a pattern here, which is both from DCs but also from foundations that are funding nonprofits. We hear the same story, which is, hey, why don't you try and do your, fr- like, we're interested. You've built a relationship with us, but why don't you go test your market with a Kickstarter campaign? Right, and again, that could be for a nonprofit that's solving sort of a social issue, or from a venture capitalist or other investor, angel investor, perhaps that is potentially investing in a team that is investing their time into solving a problem for a particular market, and so Kickstarter becomes a really interesting mechanism to test the validity of that team's project for that market problem, and so I think it's it's definitely again broader than just. VC, it's it's you see the same pattern happening from both directions. Right, right. Yeah, no, that's. Uh, good. But I've not, I've not seen, I've not heard of people scouting the platform for that. I've heard about that from the music world and the film world, hundred percent.
1: No, okay, interesting. So, so I, I'd love to ask this question because we have, you know, people listen to this podcast are, you know, designers, engineers, entrepreneurs, etc. Yeah. With your experience with Kickstarter, you have to be one of the experts right on startups so is there a a keys or or if you uh, talk to somebody that had their own idea and wanted to kick it off what what are the keys to success or or can or basically you really want to know (laughs) is could you kind of in a sense tell if they had what it took or if you Mm. said oh there's some red flags with these with this uh, group of people because i don't think they have it because maybe you know Uh, maybe the idea is not good or something else. What what were the real keys to success?
0: So, you know, I'll I'll give a direct answer to it and then I'll give a sideways answer to it, (laughs) Okay, right? Um, Because I I would argue that um, generally speaking, the world is not clear cut because the world is always changing and we're in a moment where there's just so much change. Forget CV19, right? (laughs) But the direct answer is at the end of the day, what Kickstarter is providing you is in many, if not most, if not all cases, your initial what I'll say is R and D capital. And I mean that whether it's an artist wanting to produce some a a particular kind of work or uh, a journalist doing a piece, like it's all speculative, right? Uh, The work isn't done yet. You're funding the act of doing it. And the act of doing anything is a journey and you're constantly responding to the experience you're having in that journey. So, uh, so I, I think that the, the direct answer to that is at the end of the day, you just need to be yourself. Like, why is it that you are doing the thing that you're doing? And ultimately I, I deeply believe that by sharing that story, you share something about yourself and it's those things that people can believe in, right? It's, those are the things that connect with somebody at a deeper level than just the object that you're getting itself. And I think arguably that's deeply important because I said it earlier, every project, every company, everything is a journey, especially when you're doing something that's, uh, I would argue, out of the norm or out of your sweet spot, which the majority of Kickstarter campaigns are for people who are running them. Right. There's always this journey and sometimes the journey goes down a really dark path. Uh, and so I think you need and want that other connection beyond just the object. And maybe I'll explain that in, in, a, in a very literal way through the example of a, of a project that I backed that was going sideways. Uh, so there's a project called The Invisible Speaker. I think they were out of Sweden. Some really good guys. Uh, they had never made a speaker before. Uh, and The Invisible Speaker was basically like a steel enclosure, like a frame that had a, a glass uh, enclosure to it. And so you could see the guts of the speakers beautiful. I now have it. It's my family room. It sounds awesome. (laughs) Um, But the path to get there was very, very hard. And there was a period which is, I think, normal in the old world, which is when things are going bad, you're anxious and you clam up. And you focus on solving the problem so you can only deliver good news. Well, what happened in a transparent world, forget the speaker, but transparent world meaning something like Facebook, right, is the people who were backing the campaign were becoming frustrated because it was actually a high price point. It was like $500 item, high, high price point campaign. and so It wasn't just like, you know, a small amount of cash that people were out. And so people were going down their sort of imaginary paranoia path of like, hey, these guys basically took our money and we're never going to hear from them again. They're probably like, you know, hanging out in Tulum in Mexico. <laughs> uh, and that was like the furthest thing from the case. And so the comments were getting really nasty. And the thing that extinguished the nasty wasn't delivering the project. It was what happened before delivering the project. And that was, hey, sorry, we've been out of touch. We've been in a very deep pickle. Here's the backstory. And that one post didn't solve the problem either. That post just brought attention again to the pain. But what did solve the problem was consistently sharing updates over the next couple of months, consistently every week or every month, sharing some status of what's going on, but showing some indication that we're still here. We're still fighting for this project and we're making little bits of progress. Um, And I see this day in day out on the platform. So I think, you know, going back to it, uh, I would say is a couple of things. I'll go back to the direct answer. Be yourself and explain why you're doing this project and then communicate consistently and openly about progress, good or bad. There will always probably be bad. If, it, if there's no bad, then you're not pushing yourself enough. And so I think those two things are the simplest things. When it comes to things like promotion and getting a lot of visibility and getting a lot of backers and a lot of money out of the campaign, I'm probably the last person to ask about that stuff. <laughs> um, but I think you know, getting into the aspect of communication, Actually, communication kind of summarizes both of those things. Those are no, the uh, successful campaigns.
1: Yeah, and it's a great answer. What, not what I was expecting, but actually a, mm. a, a really good answer. But it is true. Communication is uh, can be a huge key to success. Yeah. 100%. Yep. Yeah.
0: It gets you through hard times. Well, and I, and I think something else just to underpin going back to the stories of, you know, stories through projects and the learnings that we get through projects. I'm constantly, just as a designer, and I guess maybe as an entrepreneur, I'm constantly looking for patterns. And I would say one pattern that I find really fascinating that, again, doesn't get communicated on the surface, if I equate two stories. So Amanda Palmer, who's a, a fairly well-known musician who uh, ran an incredibly uh, successful campaign on, on the platform a number of years ago, and uh, Eric Magowski, who is the founder of Pebble. The stories of commonality there are that the with Eric, um, Eric ran this project called Pebble, which still to this day has raised the most amount of money on, on the platform, but he couldn't get a dime from investors. So Pebble was a, um, is a connected watch. They built it and launched it before the Apple Watch and raised $10 million, I believe. And then the second one, Pebble Time, raised $20 million. So massive campaigns. Right. Um, But he couldn't get a penny from investors. And he went out of the gate. They wanted to raise enough capital. I think it was like $15,000 just to get a prototype out out into the world. And that $15,000 campaign ended up raising $10 million. So completely blew their expectations out of the water. And so there's Eric, a total underdog. Can't get capital. Can't get capital. On the flip with Amanda, maybe a little bit different in timing, but she had already had a relationship with the record label but was becoming frustrated that she wanted to take her music into a different direction. But the label as many labels or businesses want to do is no, your sound that you were you've been working on is what's selling records. Don't change it. Right? So if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, But she wasn't interested in that. So she felt very confined creatively, entrepreneurially, I would argue the same thing by her label. She parted ways with the label ended up launching a campaign in the way that she wanted to do it and, frankly, in the way that only Amanda, I think, can do it and raised a million dollars, which was, at the time, I think still maybe to this day, the largest funded music campaign on the platform. Uh, It's like $1.2 million, which was incredible and certainly more than she'd ever done through the label. And so she did it herself. And so I think there's a commonality, which is that we are generally limited by the gatekeepers of the capital, of the treasure chest. But if you just go to community, you have a much better understanding of what they want, which is ultimately who you're appealing to. Both of those examples are, you know, they're clearly like high value projects in terms of number of people backing and the amount of capital backing. But that story of struggle, and I think the point to using those examples is the story of, of those struggles exist even for these massive campaigns. And I say that only because I, I think the common refrain or reflection on those campaigns is they were they were just meant to be, right? And right. and I think for, if you were to talk to Amanda or Eric, they were probably not in their eyes meant to be because they couldn't even get them off the ground. At least with, you know, with Eric and Pebble. So um, the world was kind of stacked against them at the time.
1: Right. No great stories. That's interesting about Amanda. I know you've mentioned that before. It's uh uh, just off topic, but I, uh, I, I was watching a documentary on the Beatles and yeah. they had Sergeant Peppers come out and yep. like, all the record labels like, no, this what? isn't the Beatles. This is different. And they're, they're like, this is what we want to do. And of course,
0: yep, yep. totally. It did 100%. incredibly
1: well. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, yep. Well, this is great. I I'd love to jump into, to talk about lost arts as well. And you know, your new venture there and you know, what's the idea behind that and you know, what's the inspiration behind it?
0: Yeah, totally. So maybe to to preface that a little bit, I I need to admit something. And that is, as a person, I'm just, I'm constantly inspired by and driven by creative people. Again, whether that's an entrepreneur, an artist, a musician, what have you. And the fact that they are driven to push themselves and push culture forward by virtue of their work. Um, and that, I say that only because even pre-Kickstarter, there was projects that I was working on that were trying to solve similar problems about empowering creative people. When I, once I left Kickstarter, I knew that this was kind of a domain that I wanted to work in, and I was investigating you know, what were some of the modern problems that creative people had. And what I centered on, what I kept seeing is, again, a pattern. I get interested in patterns. Um, a pattern that I recognize, again, across that wide definition of creative people artists, entrepreneurs, industrial designers, architects, engineers, and so forth, is access to space and tools were still hard to come by. They were expensive. It was expensive to maintain the equipment. It was time-consuming to ma- maintain equipment. It was expensive and time-consuming to maintain a space. And one common thing as I looked at, whether it was like maker spaces or private studios or little fab labs and so forth, was the equipment really wasn't being used to its greatest potential. I'll give you a little example. A friend of mine's a furniture designer and builder here in Chicago, and I went to go visit him as a, again, kind of conversation with the intention of research. And I kept asking him, I was like, well, how often do you use the drill press? How, do you, how often do you use that lathe that you have sitting in the back over there? Um, he's like, eh, every couple of weeks, maybe every couple of months. But the thing that I really use, like, I'm on the table saw all the time. It's like all right, cool. That that helps. Um, so as an example, like he's got he paid probably a couple hundred dollars, if not more, a couple thousand dollars for this like big heavy drill press that fits his needs. He's paying rent for the space that that machine takes up and all these other machines take up, but he doesn't use it all that often. And so in the downtime, can somebody else use it? It's kind of the narrative of a makerspace, so to speak, right? Right. And and I wasn't really satisfied with what. I felt we could push the concept of makerspace even further and provide access to even greater number of people. And so, what Lost Arts started as is effectively a makerspace through the lens of a designer, I guess, because because if if I'm anything, I'm a designer. And and the intention there, I sort of look at it this way: is that the tools in the space were the things that people needed immediately, but the more valuable thing to them and the kind of business that I become very interested in building are community-oriented businesses. So Kickstarter is like the easy example of that. And Lost Arts is another example of that. The community was being brought together because they needed tools in space and they met in that space. But what are some of the other things that become valuable or reveal themselves as valuable once all these people are in the space together? Sometimes that means a collaboration. Sometimes that means capital. Sometimes that means kind of gig economy narratives like, hey, I'm going to Pay you for a little bit of your time for you to do something for me, and then maybe in a year, two years, some somewhere along the path, I can do something for you, and you're going to pay me for it. The other way that plays out is information. I don't know what I'm doing. Can you help me understand? Fill in the gaps of my lack of understanding, and/or introduce me to other people. So there's this whole like network of sharing that happens in the space, in maker spaces, in university labs, in universities as a whole. In the IDSA, as another example, but I don't think they're really centered on community. It's the community sharing information is almost on accident. And so what starts is now, um, so now I've moved away from physical space. I sort of ran these two spaces as an, ex- as an experiment over the course of two years. And really what I'm doing is now centering on the community part. And what what that is, is building a product that allows community to come together around this conversation around feedback and sharing of resources or knowledge or insight when you're in a moment of need. And so it's super, super early, almost going back to the Kickstarter story uh, and when we launched and when we developed it, we developed it through the economic downturn of 07, 08 and part of 09 uh, and launched in 09. I'm in super early development, uh, launched the, the or shared the project with literally 10 people a couple months ago uh, and about to go through another round of development with it and share it out with maybe 20 people with <laughs> the intention of, you know, it becoming more visible and more accessible and in let's call it a year just to be, give myself some breathing room. But, but yeah, so that's, that's a lot of starts. And, and I think, you know, maybe even going back to perspective on startups, maybe more broadly perspective on company building is it is a journey uh, and sometimes the path there is very circuitous and very long and if you think about that story i told about the journey to the kickstarter that we know now the start to that story started for perry in 2001 we didn't launch until april 28th of 2009 that was almost a decade for that guy it's a very long long journey Um, and then every time you add somebody to the team Yancy, myself, Lance, Mike and Carson, who were the other two developers, Lance was the other developer, the story starts to change a little bit, you get more inputs. And then the moment that you start in introducing early users, the story starts to change a little bit and you inform the story. So it's all a journey. And so this this journey with, with Lost Arts, I mean, it basically started in 2015 for me, and is still going on. But I took this kind of like hard left uh, this year with Moving from a physical space to a virtual space,
1: right, right. No, I, I, lo- I love the idea, and it, it's interesting when you were talking about it. You mentioned community feedback, and I think that's so important. I remember totally. I remember hearing advice like if they said when you have a great idea for a new product or a new company or a new whatever website, yep, the best thing to do is to get your closest friends together, the people that will give you completely honest feedback, not the people that say, "Oh, great idea." no matter what yes. you say, right? And present the idea in front of them and ask for that honest feedback, you know, because they'll be the ones that tell you, Cliff, this is a dumb idea. <laughs> Don't do it. Or, you know what? I think, I think it's good, but maybe if you focused on this piece of it. 100%, um, Yeah, which, go, which goes back, so... The the, the, the difficult, communi- part, the difficult
0: part for the, the creator, the entrepreneur, the artist, the designer is internalizing all that feedback because you're going to get a lot of feedback that counters one another. right. And knowing what to take and what to shelve. And what's interesting, if I take that a step further, is like that's showing and asking. And it's a lot of what I'm doing. But I think what's interesting, if I kind of pull this into maybe some deeper context to, you know, what I would argue is like the listenership for the podcast, let's assume because this is SolidWorks and Dessau, that these are people who are using software to make physical objects of some kind right? For the most part, not not entirely, right? But if I think about the process that I'm going through with Lost Arts, the process that we went through with Kickstarter, the process that is now um, pretty standard in the software world, which is iteration, right? Early prototype, share it with your audience, and then refine it. That is just a building block off of industrial design, right? The difference arguably with industrial design is um, you build a prototype and then you look at it and then you refine it. But the, the moment that I think we're in now, which is really interesting, and this gets into kind of the, the, the area that I'm most interested in and relates certainly to Lost Arts in some, some capacity is um, where, where can manufacturing go? Like what does the future of manufacturing look like? Um, and right now it's constrained by, generally speaking, um, high MOQ numbers. And I think what becomes interesting as we look through, say, the lens of additive manufacturing, or I would say a- additive manufacturing, but even computer-controlled manufacturing, so it's kind of like CNC, where can those thing- these things go? Can those MOQ numbers go way down to basically build on demand? Um, and I think we're, we're quite a ways away from that future across the board, but there's some really interesting examples of that kind of taking shape. And and how that kind of plays out with, um, say, 3D printing, right, and product development, I think that that becomes really, really interesting. And we're in a really curious time because of that.
1: No, I agree. I agree. I know you you brought up a good point. My my degree was actually in industrial design, product design. So oh, is that right? Yeah, okay, but cool. It, and it's so true because you we you know we talk so much about community now and yep. and collaboration, but it's true. When I was going through the the design process in college it was pretty much myself, right? <laughs> Some team projects, but usually mm. you made all the iterations yourself and you yep. didn't have as much community feedback until that jury with your professor and classmates uh, before, the final, before the final design. And it was, if you had a major mistake, you can't go back to the starting board at that point. So yeah. hundred yep. percent. Yeah, Charles, this is good. Any other last thoughts that you'd like to add to this? Uh, there's definitely a common theme around a community and creative people here.
0: Yeah. Um, I I mean, I guess I think we're all stuck in this moment and I think the closing thought would be summarized in just go for it. So what I mean by that is for those that have jobs that are listening, you're fortunate, (laughs) right? For those who have an income that can funnel some of that capital into some of these side projects that you're thinking about, that is a blessing right now. And for those that don't, like me, frankly. um, And I can explain that in a second. This moment provides a much needed urgency to discover what you're made of. And I think it's through these creative projects and that urgency that you push yourself because you need to, at the end of the day, pay your rent, pay your mortgage, put food on the table, all those things. And for many people, Now and into the next couple of months, I would imagine, that's going to be challenged. So how I relate to that is majority of my income as of late has been speaking engagements. And as of a couple of weeks ago, that might have completely disappeared. And if anything, it's certainly delayed at minimum, right? Right. So I have like zero money coming in right now. Um, But I'm also given a lot of time and I'm trying to use that time to push some of these projects that I'm working on, Lost Arts and a couple of other things, that on the other side of it might mean a new career path for me or might mean a new venture. And so I think as much as it's like a really depressing, scary, we're looking over the cliff, a very, very steep cliff, recognizing that it's also hopefully a very, potentially very creative time. And you're freed up if you're unemployed to be very creative and find some, what I would argue is self-sufficiency. So I think the thing that I'm very hopeful for is we're just going to see a lot of new companies or new products or new ideas and new industries pop up out of, out of all of this.
1: I, I, I 100% believe you're right. That's a great positive message to leave us on. I, I totally agree. Thanks for listening today. And to learn more about Charles Adler and his new venture, Lost Arts, go to lostarts.co. Also, to learn more about the SOLIDWORKS Entrepreneurship Program that helps startups and entrepreneurs get their ideas started, go to SOLIDWORKS.com entrepreneur. We also discussed the importance of communication and collaboration in developing new ideas. So if you'd like to learn more about solutions to connect people and data, go to SOLIDWORKS.com collaboration. We'll be back again soon with more great Born to Design podcast stories at SOLIDWORKS.com podcasts or wherever podcasts are readily available. Until then, keep innovating. I really hope that what you heard today has inspired you. If you enjoyed it, please head on over to iTunes, search for the Born to Design podcast, and leave a five-star review so that this podcast will be recommended to more people, helping us expand the Born to Design community. Thank you.